Yeah, and the thing of I mean, when I saw you started this podcast, I was I was really excited, and I was like, "Dude, I hope he invites me to be a guest on the show. That would rock." <laughs> <laughs> so I'm really, I'm really grateful to be here um, because I thought, I mean, the nature of this podcast, I mean, uh, it's super cool because when I look at sustainability, I often see that it gets um, co-opted for marketing purposes and things like that. Yeah. And so having the justice element, you know, front and center as part of sustainability to me is paramount importance um, to, in order to, to mitigate some of the, the, the effects of people wanting to, or companies wanting to do that. Uh-huh. And, you know, I mean, I was um, a little bit, I guess, naive, but coming out of grad, out of a grad program that focused so heavily on uh, environmental ethics uh-huh. that when I started seeing how there were people exploring sustainability in a way that neglected um, the environment, the, the human side or the environmental, the kind of environmental centered, centered thinking. Uh-huh. It really surprised me. I was like, wow, they're thinking about sustainability and they're not, they're not philosophers. Like that's, that's <laughs> tricky. You know, I realized that we were, I had the, the equation backwards, you know, that we were actually in the minority and everybody else is in the, in the majority. Though uh-huh. so I, I think that's time to change, right? I actually think it's increasingly the case that folks are becoming more thoughtful and that uh, sustainability is becoming less about uh it's less it's less i don't know how to put it like yeah it's less of that capitalistic greenwashing and more really thinking well it's becoming more like right so lately i've been on this shtick about like how sustainability essentially is the modern iteration of the project that folks like plato and aristotle were engaged in like thinking about like what's the good life and what's the good polis and, and I think sustain, the sustainability conversation is becoming increasingly parallel to that conversation about like, what does it mean to have like the good state, the good, the good city, uh, the good life? Yeah. Um, Eugene Hargrove in one of his, um, the textbook he put out, like, I forget the name of it in, in like 1989, wow. he addresses how like Plato and Aristotle would have been significantly challenged because they didn't have I mean, the, the entire world was accounted for right like right there and so there's no need to even have these conversations but now uh, but but in a sense they were they were addressing um abstract universal issues right and so now we have to reconceptualize the common um reconceptualize what it means to have to live a good life in terms of environmental uh flourishing and and that sort of stuff. So it really pushes against those those, those ideas, and shows why philosophy is is more uh, needed now than ever because we're the ones that you know, we're in the concept business. That's what we do. You know, we uh-huh. examine concepts and and uh, all the things that they can they can do for us. Uh-huh. And so now we're seeing how philosophy has uh, must be must accompany it was sciences and business and economics. And I've been involved with the. Um, interdisciplinary environmental association for over a decade now. And uh-huh. uh, I, I love going to their conferences because I get the chance to present my work to you know, people that do business, people that are in, in science and people in engineering. And, and I get feedback from their perspectives, which, which uh, is great. I'm grateful for because it lets me know, you know how my work fits in with the, th- the projects they're interested in and, and vice versa. Uh-huh. And so I, I really get a, more of a 360 view of, of the issues and and make sure I don't get too lost in the weeds, you know, that, that with issues that would just appeal to philosophers. Right. And to see people that are 
uh, scholars of business and things like that really caring about topics like intrinsic value of, of non-humans and that. Yeah. It lets me know that, you know, this, this narrative we've been fed that there's only one way to do business, kind of like the Wolf of Wall Street model is not, uh, that's, that's pretty much really outdated. Yeah. You know, like and people don't want that anymore. Well, I, I mean, I think that that was always, I, I think that was never something that people really deeply wanted. I think it was a trope that caught on because of the, the movie, but right. Like, we forget that in the Wolf of Wall Street, like the, right, the Michael Douglas is actually the bad guy. Hi, I'm Clement Liu. Welcome to season four of Just Sustainability. It is my distinct pleasure in this episode to introduce you to another old friend of mine, Shane Epting. In addition to being one of the most generally delightful people that I've been fortunate enough to meet, Shane's an assistant professor of philosophy at the Missouri University of Science and Technology. He's also one of the co-founders and remains one of the co-directors of the Philosophy of the City Research Group. He's contributed really terrific scholarship about good municipal governance, municipalities as technology, socially just community design, food justice, and environmental ethics and environmental justice as it applies to built environments. When I think about folks who push academic discourse towards the really interesting and important questions, Shane is certainly one of the people that I think about. So without further ado, let's listen to what he said after I asked him to describe himself. So, I mean, there's this, this old, this old twin, uh, saying by Mark Twain, uh, you know, write what you know. Uh-huh. Right? And so well, I, I take that and I... And I, I it, I heard a, I forget which which band it was, but some some musicians said they write the songs they want to they want to hear, right, right. And so I like to write the stuff I want to read. Okay, and a, a lot of it's missing, you know, from that. So um, I've lived in a lot of exurbs and sprawled out cities and things like that, and often found myself wanting, you know, public transit. Mm-hmm. I wanted to have to deal with driving, having to deal with the, with the headaches of all that. Yeah. And so that's, that's largely shaped a lot of my research. Um, I remember this time when my, uh, I was, I was commuting about, uh, it was 30 miles a day, but it was really more like an hour drive because of traffic and all that. Mm-hmm. And eventually, um, my, my truck broke down and I had to, it was this, um, emissions thing this part this some random part uh okay that was really expensive it was like over a thousand bucks for this part yeah and so i at that point started taking public transportation yeah and at first i would, I would ride a bicycle like a mile and a half to a train station and then take a train uh to uh from one city to the next then i would take a bus yeah and then walk to get uh to get to work and then eventually someone stole the bicycle. And so then I, <laughs> then I had to, uh, it wasn't a great bike or anything. It was just a cheap old number, but yeah. Then I had to walk like a mile to like a bus stop and then take a bus to a train and then yeah. and dealing with all that. And then when I first got my, um, my first teaching job, uh, in, in Las Vegas, I, yeah. I, uh, my, my truck had the same problem uh, again. I got it fixed before I moved. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then I get there and it breaks down again. And I was like, Oh my God, I can't believe this is happening again. Uh, and so, yeah. So the, the bus stop was right outside of our apartment, but, um, it was just like this pole on a sidewalk Yeah, and I'm a bald guy. Right. Like, yeah. and so it was just, it was just, I mean, standing there in the, in the, in the Mojave desert sun, 
just being you're waiting for the bus and of course like the bus is always going to be late yeah and you're standing there and just like drenched in sweat and i'm thinking like how now i've got to go and stand in front of a classroom full of students and you just stink and be and be like this and i started imagining what would it be like to be you know somebody else going to a job interview you know if right. you're trying to like you know make ends meet or uh advance your yourself or whatever like how is this going to affect affect different people. You know, right. I can never, I can never know what it's like to, that those, I can never experience those people's situations. Right. But uh, having gone through those situations, at least lets me know that those situations exist. You know, and one thing that I try and do in my work is I, I never speak for anybody else. Mm. Um, but, but I make sure that I have, I have no problem pointing out that the arrangement of, of, um, of the municipalities, you know, uh, say parts, right? Uh-huh. Um, the outcomes they produce uh, that are, that produce harm uh, shouldn't be like that, yeah, you yeah. know. And, and so, there's there's lots of things that you can um, you can point to that will indicate harm. Uh-huh. Right? I mean, nothing nothing's going to be nothing's going to you know be above and beyond people's testimony, right? And we have no reason to doubt people who testify to these. Do these situations, but a lot of the public health data that you see, uh-huh. uh, I mean, a lot of it's kind of common sense, you know. Uh-huh. It's like it's like sitting down all day long. Gee, that's bad for your health, you know. <laughs> and um, when I look at the at the, at the numbers, the metrics, people that it's, it's often used to uh, see what counts as acceptable for being uh, using public transportation, uh-huh. it's baffling, you know. Um, uh-huh. And so, like going spending ninety minutes going each way is on public transportation is like acceptable in a lot of places. And uh-huh. if you think about it, that's go, I mean, that's uh, in the extreme version, it's almost four hours. That's like half of a shift, uh-huh. you know? So how do we expect people to be able to, you know, get a GED, uh, take community college classes, things like that, spend time with their families. Uh-huh. If this is what we look at as acceptable. Uh-huh. You know? well, or even just get food, right? Like given that uh, it's increasingly the case that, one cannot one often cannot get food uh, w- within walking distance from where one lives and so right like if it's acceptable for you to have to travel 90 minutes uh on a on a bus yeah exactly i mean it's really and it, that's also i mean trying to get around um using public transportation where people don't look where it's looked at as is almost like an inconvenience uh-huh. something they have to consider as part of the part of the city i mean those things are felt and i mean they can definitely um Re, you know, rewire how you. I mean, like here's an example. So uh-huh. I was traveling. I was. Um, this is this is a defining moment in how I, I look at doing philosophy. I was visiting my, um, for lack of a better word, my, my my uncle Andy, who lives in. He was living in Gresham, Oregon. Okay. Um, and I go. To, I'm staying with Andy, and he and I get on. He he has to go to work, and so I get up and I, I go to get on the bus. So I'm sitting there on the bus, minding my own business. And this dude gets on the bus and he has a clipboard and he goes, who's interested in environmental justice? And I'm <laughs> like, well, well I am. <laughs> you know? And it was this dude, Hector, and he was part of the uh, OPAL for the Organizing People, Activating Leaders. This was Portland. Yeah. And he sat down next to me and started explaining to me the situation there. Right. And he's like, this is what's what's really messed up. This is the change that we're, we're fighting for. Uh-huh. You know, and this is probably over over 10 years ago or something like that. And when I started looking at the way at the issues he was describing, doing some more research, you know, I found there's yeah, people were really upset about this uh, about the situation. And uh-huh. the way that I saw it, I'm like, yeah, this 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 real world example 
uh, signals, you know, how we should be approaching looking at, at these issues. And we can, we can look at it from the actual issue on the street all the way to the abstract notions of, of uh, you know, justice or sustainability or things like that. And uh-huh. uh, to borrow a term from, from Lewis Gordon, right, his notion of disciplinary decadence, we don't, you know, we don't want to make, uh, we want to look at our experiences and how things work out in the real world uh-huh. and, and stack that against our notions of how things should be in theory, uh-huh. right? And it's like we shouldn't expect the real world to adjust to our theories. Maybe we should adjust our theories to see how they're going to fit with the real world. Uh-huh. And so that's that's been a, a, a guiding uh, inspiration for how I think about things, uh-huh. right? Because I look at it sometimes, and I was a, a, a committed deontologist for like for like ten years, at least ten years. Okay, I just thought it was a great way to, to look at the world. And the reason why I'm not a deontologist anymore is because it just stressed me out. You know, <laughs> like always trying to figure <laughs> out, you know, what my, what my duties were, and just like yeah. once I stopped. Once I just admitted that, you know, I had a problem, that was the first step towards getting help. Right. And I realized that, you know, I didn't have to think that way anymore. And I realized that I was just trying to, like, worship this this universal principle. Right. And it was actually causing me more harm than it was, it was benefiting right. you know, my life. And, and so it's just a bit of a tangential question. Uh, when you gave up deontology, what did, what, so, like, how do you think about sort of, what are you, what's sort of your meta-ethical stance now, right? How, if it's not deontology. Um, so one thing I've noticed, so I've taught classes of, of all philosophy students, and I've taught classes of all engineering students. Sure. And when I'm teaching, you know, utilitarianism, deontology, philosophy students, in a general sense, kind of they dig their heels in and they're like, I'm a deontologist no matter what, mm-hmm. you know. Or I'm a utilitarian, no matter what. Yeah, so once in a while, someone gets the short end of the stick, but you know that's that's just life. Yeah, you know. And I see professional philosophers defend this stuff, you know, like um, to the extreme. But the funny thing about engineering students, from what I've seen, and this is speaking in general terms, yeah, yeah, is that they 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 think that is almost ridiculous, sure, because they look at um, as ethical theories more as like systems you would employ to get a job done, right, and so. They think, yeah, for for this sort of a case, deontology works really well. But over here, utilitarian is what we want to what we want to address. Uh-huh. Or and they tend to like virtue ethics because you know that allows for a little bit more flexibility. Um, and so, when I'm faced with a with a, a serious issue to, to consider, I tend to do the same things. You know, like well, what, what are like the deontological considerations here? What, what how would a utilitarian see this? And uh-huh. um, and I end up going back to the when it comes to my, my personal life, I use all those things to help me think through situations and try mm-hmm. to gain clarity on what, what matters to me. Uh-huh. Right. But when I'm looking at, um, when I'm looking at issues that are public facing or something like that, I tend to focus on, and this is why I came up with the idea of moral ordering uh-huh. um, because I'm looking at outcomes, right? I mean, we're, we're dealing with, with um, things like designing uh, transit networks or, wastewater systems or what we're going to fund or whatever you have to, the outcomes hold you accountable. Uh-huh. And so when I look at that, at those issues, um, the way I saw it from an environmental ethics perspective was that the issue was limited to just humans and non-humans. Uh-huh. But then I'm like, well, wait a minute. When we have humans, we also have groups that have been exploited. We have uh-huh. groups that have been marginalized, groups that have been franchised, groups that are vulnerable. Uh-huh. And then we have people that are not right. So like, 
Uh, one, one of the points that, uh, that this uh, transportation scholar Carl Martins points out is like, he says, you know, when people are doing transit, plan, uh, transit planning, they're often just doing it for the future, but you have instances of people being harmed. And uh-huh. if you just skip over those, those, those issues, then people, they continue to suffer. Uh-huh. I'm like, yeah, exactly. Like, so that's the thing. And the way that I fleshed it out just to say, look, yeah, um, these people have been harmed or marginalized or whatever. It varies from city to city, right? Uh-huh. So it's not going to be some sort of a universal categorization of harm. Uh-huh. Uh, and this this extends across all different nations. And so when you're looking at people who have been marginalized, the fact that they've been marginalized gives them buy-in, right? Uh-huh. They're like, it's like you have to address that first before moving forward. Otherwise, you just perpetuate the harm. Uh-huh. And it's kind of like insult to injury. Uh-huh. Right? It's like, yeah, well, yeah, we know you've been harmed. We had a, we shoved a highway through your through your community, but we're going to go ahead and work on the streetcar over here because it's neat. You know, or <laughs> Or something like that. It's like how you feel. How 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 would anybody feel that situation happened to them? Yeah, right. And so, or being a vulnerable population, it's like um, like uh, when I look at, at disability studies, and I, I learned that the majority of people who are disabled become disabled in life. Right. Right. And so uh, it's like so when it comes to being a caring society. It's like, okay, some people need extra help. They need extra time getting on the bus. You know, we, we create a section of seating for people on public transit or, or whatever measures are needed. Yeah. Uh, it's like those, the, the condition of being vulnerable also counts as a form of buy-in. So why is, why do I find myself having to break out the overhead projector to explain to people why we should care about others? Right. You know, I'm like, isn't that the bigger issue here? <laughs> <You know? laughs> why, why do I have to make this argument? I really haven't argued this today. You know, like, doesn't like every single major religious text a- across the globe talk about this? You know, like, this is not a new idea here. At this point, I realize we've been talking about some fairly technical stuff about the philosophy of the city without even taking time to examine what philosophy of the city even is. So that being the case, I decided to ask Shane to take a moment and to explain the field that he played such an important role in establishing. Well, okay, so I'm gonna um, I'm gonna take us back a few steps because I think we're starting to like get into the weeds without actually kind of laying out the groundwork. And I think for folks who aren't as familiar with your work, uh, we might lose them. So I think I, I want to go back and right start from the beginning. Which I think when I think about your work, I think about philosophy, the the city, or like philosophy of municipalities and so maybe we could start there and i can just like ask you to give us like the 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 quick sort of i don't know the elevator pitch or the the you know the executive brief or whatever uh about like what what is it that you broadly work on like what is philosophy of the city what is philosophy of municipalities like what are the kind of things going on there what are you talking about what are folks talking about in that field all right so um this this December this year marks the philosophy of the city research groups mm-hmm. um, 10th anniversary. And so mm-hmm. about 10 years ago, I, I met Mike Mincer at a conference and uh, started bugging him about doing a philosophy of a city conference. Mm-hmm. Um, he's at Brooklyn college. And so we, we sat down and we, we penned the first uh, call for papers and we sent it out and we had no idea what we were going to, what we were going to receive. Mm-hmm. And we ended up getting, well over 50 submissions uh and it seemed like at that conference it was the first time that we were able to to bring these people together because before uh-huh. this conference you would see you know a special issue here um a few papers here and there uh-huh. dealing with with urban issues from a, you know, from a philosophical point of view uh-huh. 
but when I tried having these conversations within environmental ethics, uh, my I always kept basically given the cold shoulder, you know, yeah. um, and because I mean, you, you could argue that the, the cities being massive polluters are kind of they, they, they could be seen as anti-environmental. Yeah. Well, I, I also think there's a little bit of bias of who's been historically the folks that are environmental philosophers, right? And how they conceive of the environment, right? So like, if you actually think of what the actual environment that the majority of people live in, it's cities. And so yeah. that seems to be an obvious environment that we should talk about. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, and so like, for me being a, you know, a person focused on numbers. Yeah. Um, I look at it, I look at it as two sides of the same coin. On one hand, you want to have conversations about preservation and conservation uh-huh. and deal with those issues. And on the other side, you look at the, uh, what's causing the harm and how can we, you know, we have to live uh-huh. and we have to be able to um, do so in a way that doesn't destroy, you know, nature because we have to have it uh, to, to live and thrive. Uh-huh. And so how can we make our cities, uh, how can we arrange our cities or order our cities or conceive of cities in a way uh-huh. that cut back on the environmental demand, uh-huh. right? And so that's a lot of, that's, that's where my approach to philosophy of the city came from was how do we do that, but how do we do it in a way that at the same time, includes a robust account of sustainability uh-huh. to where sustainability is environmentally just by, you know, according to the criteria established by scholars. Sure. So you know, to answer the, the next the other part of your question, what I, what I saw emerge out of that conference and seems to be a recurring trend is when you look at issues in, let's just say mainstream philosophy, uh-huh. right? You, you, you have these, like these really big questions and these, these areas of debates and that hasn't been the case in philosophy of the city, okay. right? And I think it's it's um, to, to be able to, to make the argument that philosophy of the city should conform to these larger patterns within the discipline uh-huh. uh, would be going back to Lewis Gordon's um, disciplinary decadence, but more like an intradisciplinary decadence, saying that, you know, philosophy should conform to these, these our expectations of it uh-huh. uh, instead of embracing what it's become, right? So... It's it's neat. it's so neat in philosophy of the city because I meet people like uh, for example Michael Nagenborg at University of Twente. Uh-huh. Uh, one of his research specializations is elevators. Okay. So people are like, oh, what do you work on? Elevators, you know. And that's, <laughs> that sounds kind of funny, but it's true. Like when you, whenever you hear him give this talk on elevators, like it, it, it blew me out. It blew my mind. I'm like, oh my god, this is so brilliant. You know, and he's talking about like one device, right? Right, one thing. And so you have things like that. Then you also have. Um, you know, uh, I know I have a student right now. She's working on sidewalks. You yeah. know, and she looks at sidewalks like where it's just like, just like wow, that's that's absolutely amazing. Um, but then like Ronald Sundstrom and Tyler Zimmer working on gentrification, right? And so they're part of a much larger interdisciplinary conversation, and their perspectives really challenge a lot of the ways that people people look at those topics. Uh-huh. So you have those kind of interdisciplinary conversations. Um, and then you have people like Stephen Vogel, you know, who is thinking like a mall book, which is, you know, it's absolutely brilliant. Uh-huh. It's really a, a really long, deep think about about the way that we can look at urban artifacts. Um, and so and then you have um, people that do urban aesthetics and, you know, street art and stuff like that. Uh-huh. And so you have all these different areas. And um what I was anticipating was more arguments when I put out the call for papers, more, more, more uh, topics dealing with uh, like the, the way that p- the city has been conceived of throughout the history of philosophy and things like uh-huh. that, but not so much. Uh-huh. It's, it's more about like sort of the, the practical ways folks interact with 
the spaces around them and the sort of the ethical, moral, and aesthetic issues about that, right? Yeah, it's where it's not it's not this discipline or the subdiscipline where you have just um, you know a, a narrowly defined set of parameters of inquiry, but instead you have like this this thing that just keeps on giving. You mm-hmm. know, this is area of study that um, I mean to look at individual cities to look at cultural events the way that shitty cities shape culture and and those kinds of issues uh i mean it's, it's fascinating and i can go to the one of the philosophy of the city conferences and spend an entire day just hearing talks that are just brilliant and at the same time accessible right you know and we often have um people who like what i would consider like you know tourists from outside of philosophy you know, so usually a lot of professionals that'll come uh-huh. to the conferences and they're just uh, mesmerized by what we do uh-huh. right and it's really neat to hear their perspectives on things and when i first started writing about uh, topics in philosophy of the city i was really nervous to do it because i'm right. like well here i am what do i know about cities i'm like wait a minute i've lived in a bunch of them you know like <laughs> you know, like i have lived experience you know right. and, and i love them and and all that sort of stuff. And um, when I taught uh, at, at, at UNLV, I taught a co- course called uh, Transfer- Transition Justice. Yeah. And I had the the regional planner um, for the for the area come in and, and give a talk. And she's really cool. She was really cool. But some of my students were a bit aggressive and challenged oh. and, and really challenged uh, the way that they were presenting their material sure. and, and were able to give like concrete examples of what they thought was a, was a, was a problem of equity and distribution in the city. Right. And the, the planner took it to heart and didn't right. give a political politician, used card salesman, salesperson kind of an answer. Yeah. yeah. And to see that kind of exchange, uh, I thought it was fantastic. Right. So there are, urban planners that really do care. But then I see, you know, instances of urban planning where I, I look at it and I'm like, why would you do that? You know, uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, one of the, the, one of the best books that I've read in the past year, it was a uh, Jesse singers. There are no accidents. Right. And uh-huh. she addresses on kind of a, a surface level that makes, has really broad appeal. The, the, the idea that you see in um, some of the research in philosophy technology uh-huh. that, Everything that we build, right, it has it has these these outcomes and these effects, uh-huh. and they're really nothing's by mistake, uh-huh. right? You, so intentionality kind of falls to the wayside because it doesn't really matter what your intentions were. The outcomes are what matter. Like how are people being affected by this? Uh-huh. Like, you could have built this road, you know, with the best intentions, but if people don't feel safe on it, well, there you go, right? It's like All right. when you look at Las Vegas, they have. So much, so so many, many, I mean, hundreds of miles of bike lanes. Yeah, but they're basically a joke because no one feels safe riding on a three three foot wide, you know, uh, stretch of, of of roadway with cars passing at you know fifty miles per hour or whatever. Right. And, and so it's like, okay, yeah, you're the expert in charge, and this is what you, we came up with. And I, and I think sometimes it's it's how people frame what they're trying to do. Right. So like, I think one people, so it sounds like the, the person that visited your class was, they might've been framing the work in terms of service to the community, right? Like how do we make things better for people? Yeah, right. And then that would probably lead one to be sort of thoughtful and mindful about impacts on people. But I, having talked with folks with different sort of mindsets, some folks are thinking about sort of like 
right? Thinking things much more abstractly or thinking about like, right, like compliance with certain things or like thinking about like budgetary constraints and not thinking as much about people and their sort of lived experience inter like interacting with infrastructure. And I think that sometimes like colors, right, the outcomes that in, end up happening. Yeah. Like I look at it in terms of this is, I discussed this in my, um, a lot is that you have a, what I would consider to be a, a communication disconnect between the people that are, they're making the things the people that need to made for them. Uh-huh. Right? So unless, unless these planners or, or engineers or any municipal agents or whatever can actually find out you know, how these, how arrangement of infrastructures and policies affect people, you're never going to have a complete view. Of, you're not going to have all the information you need to get the job done correctly. Uh-huh. And so that's why I've been so excited about um, studying the participatory budgeting project in New York uh-huh. because it actually um, it serves the people who need it the most, right? Uh-huh. So people lower uh, socioeconomic status and allows them to to see themselves participate in the larger conversations of how cities should be. Put, put together. Uh-huh. So if we can apply it to um, using a, a municipality's discretionary funds to um, build better parks or get playground equipment or put in st- uh, uh, safety uh, stop signs, things like that, uh-huh. or stop lights, um, why can't we do it to, to other forms of municipal government uh-huh. to help create cities and do that? And it's kind of like a, I don't, I don't want to say a chicken and an egg. It's not really, a, it doesn't really work, but people say things like, well, that doesn't really exist. Therefore we can't do it. And I'm like, right. well, that means we should just study it and figure out how to do it. You know, cause there's, you can look at the pattern behind pedestory budgeting and say, okay, how can we um, make this, make this feasible in terms of other areas of application? Here's a good spot for us to end this episode. So far, Shane and I have talked about how his experiences living in cities and using public transportation led him to begin working on philosophy of the city. And we've talked about what philosophy of the city is. In the next episode, we'll start with Shane explaining the idea of participatory budgeting. Thank you for listening to Just Sustainability. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review. Just Sustainability is recorded with the support of the Institute in the Environment at the University of Minnesota. In particular, I want to thank Peter Levin and Beth Mercer-Taylor for all their help with this show. All the music on Just Sustainability is composed and recorded by Clifton Nesseth, and all the artwork was created by Kristen Nesseth. Thank you again for listening.